You're listening to the third episode of the Wicked Podcast. I'm Mike Moore. Be forewarned, a lot of this is about fundamentalist Christianity going a bit wrong, but it is not intended as an attack on faith either. It's mostly about depression. If trigger warnings lowered rather than raised levels of emotional upset, I'd include one, but they don't, so I won't. Each episode is me explaining what was going on in my adolescent life that occasioned the writing of a particular song from my unreleased concept album, The Story of Peter Gray. I'll continue for the two of you who are still listening. Episode 3, Digging for Pride. I don't think I'll have as much to say about this song. I've set the stage pretty thoroughly by now, so most of the groundwork is done already. So this one should be really, really, really short. I was there, and it was like this. When going through teenage depression, I think it's fair to say I kind of went to two extremes about it. I was definitely trying to achieve some kind of balance by doing that. I was willing to be as extremely cliche and stereotypical about adolescent angst as I needed to, wearing black and collecting knives and liking things decorated with skulls and so on. But I also knew it was kind of silly and to laugh at it. I knew it would be fatal to take it too seriously. When I've been most depressed, yet for some reason able to write a song about it, I find puns creeping in. When I'm cheerful and writing a song, I find dark humor creeping in. I guess there's balance there. I've always been very aware of, and very critical of, contradictions and inconsistencies, so I knew that I was in a pretty stupid, dysfunctional place in my high school years. I wanted people to go away and leave me alone and I found them maddening, upsetting, and impossible to relate to, yet I also felt bored and deeply lonely. I also knew that I was trying to get less suicidal by freeing myself as much as possible from other people's expectations that I continually fake outer enthusiasm and happiness, but I feared their judgment for so doing. I was trying to get to a place where I could opt out of mandatory cheerfulness activities without being hurt by people's rejection of me as a result. I was trying to break free of that cycle of dysfunction without making things feel worse. About that, I have never worked out a way to cure, quote-unquote, depression. And there are no surgeries or pills or talk therapies or meditative techniques either that I believe will really do that. All they can do, if they work for you at all, is treat it, so you can perhaps cope with it a bit, despite it still being a thing in your life. I can, though, let you know what sometimes, not always, made me feel slightly better back in the day. First thing, my approach to depression was invariably to retreat to a silent, dark, familiar place, my bedroom. My brain didn't feel like it could cope with much incoming stimuli to process and wanted to basically shut down all awareness of the outside world and lock itself away and spin its wheels fruitlessly, uninterrupted and undistracted for hours in a downward spiral of misery. Now, what would have been the hardest thing seemed like it also would have been the best thing, giving my brain something new to chew on besides what was in my bedroom, letting some stuff pour in all five or six senses. Sunlight seemed too hot and bright, people too loud, food too whatever, but it was all a good idea. The silent solitude was counterproductive. Another thing, taking a bath or shower makes you feel good because it is familiar and fetal, but it also gives your brain pleasurable sensations to process when you've been starving it of sensation. Also, odd side effect of baths and showers, they can make you cleaner, especially if you weren't very clean before. And a shower can feel like an accomplishment some days. 
Another thing, food. I often had no appetite when depressed, but simply tasting something with a strong taste to it gave not only my teeth but also my brain something to chew on. Something spicy, ice cream, temperature, texture, flavor, all of that gave my brain something to do besides giving me worse thoughts. Another thing, exercise. Obviously, the last thing I wanted to do at the best of times, and especially not when I was depressed and felt like I had no energy, but taking long walks alone, off in the evening or at night, turned out to be the best thing. Didn't take much energy, yet started to feed my brain and change my scenery up so I couldn't just spin in misery. Depression may have felt like being a dead battery, but looking deeper, I soon found that really, I was usually filled with excesses of emotional energy, despite the feeling exhausted. It was like I was exhausting myself keeping a torrent of feelings in. So, when worn out with nervous energy and unable to sleep, walking. Also, anger is a pretty standard one-size-fits-all packaging for any old random emotions you're having trouble dealing with. So if dad had wood that needed splitting with a big axe, or anything at all needed to be disassembled, smashed, demolished, or scrapped, I found letting the emotional energy fuel some exercise of that kind made me feel absolutely cleansed. Therapeutic destruction, as it were. Certainly more constructive than lying in bed throwing hunting knives across my bedroom all afternoon to see how many times I could make them stick into a kitchen chair. I didn't have a cell phone back then, but I'll bet a lot of the things on the internet might not have been terribly helpful. Familiar old TV and movies, not watched to get really excited and into something new and fun, but just to feed my brain a gentle trickle of warm soup would have helped, only I wasn't allowed those. Music was important for the same reason, like soaking in a warm bath or letting out rage. Brethren people were not encouraged to listen to music that was about rage. Coincidentally, I had a great deal of it. I did none of these things, though, hoping they would cure me, because I knew they wouldn't. But they were a whole lot better than the lying around and being miserable. So, a bit of sunlight, walking around, changing the scenery up, sights and sounds, food, all good when a room full of people laughing like hyenas over something stupid might send you fleeing back to your unhappy place. These things often make you feel better when you have the flu or something. No surprise that coddling, rather than neglecting and hurting yourself, feels a little good right when you need to. A cold blade piercing your skin is not a feel-good sensation that your brain will enjoy chewing on. Neither is depriving yourself of the usual things like meals, sleep, and personal hygiene. That's all part of a cycle of pain and shame causing more pain and shame. You hurt and feel neglected, so you hurt and neglect yourself and then feel hurt and neglected some more. The thing about cycles is toss almost anything random into the middle of them and they tend to get disrupted and fall apart a little bit. For me, depression needed that dark bedroom. Of course, I had been miserable until I retreated to it, but after maybe a brief feeling of relief to have retreated there, depression flourished and grew in there. Toss a wrench into the gears of depression, I found, just any old random thing, and it could really disrupt those patterns of practiced misery. I met a charismatic Christian in a wheelchair once. He told me people in wheelchairs are particularly unwelcome at all those churches that claim to be able to faith heal people in wheelchairs. Just him sitting there was moment by moment evidence to the contrary. I was like a much milder version of that, but with peace and joy deficits rather than mobility problems. 
I was reluctantly getting shamed into attending events put on by places that claimed to have the market on peace and joy cornered, yet I was visibly anxious and unhappy the whole time I was there. At school, the message was that if I spoke to the guidance counselor, I would feel more calm, and if I did school activities, I would feel more joyful. Yet there I was, anxious and lonely and miserable, all the same, even if I tried those things. More miserable, anxious, and lonely, in fact, than I would have if I had just stayed home. It was almost like schools couldn't cure depression and social anxiety in the 80s. Good thing we've since figured all of that out and can cure those in a single inspirational speech by a guest speaker to the school. It was the same thing at church. My being there, clearly lonely, anxious, and miserable, was a giant bit of evidence that maybe what they were selling didn't work for all of us. But like a man with a hammer, thinking everything looks pretty much like a nail, to church or students' council folks, all problems could seemingly be explained by a lack of church attendance or participation in students' council activities. We didn't have much for artsy people, did we? A brethren woman who'd enjoyed youth group back in the day recently suggested. By artsy, do you mean philosophical, creative, expressive, or political? People into reading, or drama, or poetry, or music, or doing anything besides sports? I asked. Yes she said after a moment's thought. It also had to do with extroverts not understanding introverts. We all were, in brethren families, being protected from TV and movies and pop music and dances and parties to keep us safe. They were presented to us, and many of us genuinely saw them, as problematic, as toxic. We didn't really admit it, but we were also raised to find them very much beneath us. I didn't swear, and it was because I would have felt it beneath me to do so. I was of purer lips than to utter sin. I was working one time for a company, and a man come up to the counter, a man I had never met before, and as I was getting his order ready, he began to tell me a filthy story. And I thought, oh, this is, what am I going to do? And I didn't know what to do. He so caught me off guard, and so I just paid absolutely no attention to his story when he when he concluded it. He was waiting for the laugh. I paid no attention to it, and that man was so embarrassed he didn't know what to do. Oh, I wish I would have had the courage to say a little more to him, but perhaps the silence was better than what I could have said. I don't know. But it, uh, the man was floored. He didn't know what to do. It was a rebuke to him. Well, dear ones, if we can't at least give them something for their conscience, perhaps we can rebuke them by just having no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Curry would tell me, move your ass, if I was in his way. And I would get upset. No one spoke to me that way at home or at church. I didn't even have an ass, of course. A backside, for sure. A butt. So Curry was just being an a-hole for no reason. If I had spoken that way, someone listening could be excused if they mistook me for some regular person, rather than being one of the Lord's own people. The Jews had been God's chosen people, of course, until Jesus came along. Now, it was us. And Christians don't swear. I know a lot of Christians who, though they spend most of their time nowadays on their phones and watching Netflix while their Bibles get dusty, who cling superstitiously to the idea that there somehow are bad words, words that are somehow beneath them. The Bible doesn't speak of forbidden words, but of corrupt communications. I have to think that a lot of people are communicating a great deal of corrupt and twisted stuff without ever saying the F word. 
As a teenager, though, we were robbed of colorful, expressive, and emphatic language in Christian circles pretty much altogether. So when I lost my temper outright, I didn't go profane. But I did tend to go eloquent. That was weird. Normal people didn't do that. I couldn't swear, though. So when I got angry, I started to talk like people in the books I read. After being left on hold an inordinate amount of time by a company who didn't seem to be able to get things together when I was at university and trying to get my phone set up, I once lost my temper and instead of yelling at them to f*** the hell off and shove their customer service model up their ass sideways, I said, As amusing as it has been to watch this carnival of ineptitude unfold, I have far more boring things to do today than wait for you to figure your job out and got off the line. I found that not swearing often means being far more hurtful than simply letting loose and swearing at someone. There's a certain honesty in swearing that wasn't in fashion among the Plymouth Brethren. We believed that passive-aggressive was an okay form of aggressive. At church and at school, we were being encouraged to do group things all the time rather than individual ones. People who went off alone or in twos or threes seemed suspicious, weird. You were supposed to spend all of your time with all of the others, playing charades or volleyball or talking about hockey or whatever else they were all doing by some sort of unspoken consensus. I'm sure it hasn't escaped your notice that the whole system was skewed towards extroverts, and no more than maybe half of human beings are extroverts. Some of us needed something different, and there was a strong resistance to this by the extroverts who were inside out compared to the rest of us. At my school, and even more so at my non-church, I just couldn't find anyone much who wanted to talk about computers or philosophy or poetry or emotions or theology or books or any of that. We were forced to study Hamlet in school, but I didn't see what was so hard about this biblically worded tale of a deeply disturbed 17-year-old acting out, and I would have loved to have discussed it with someone. Anyone. I was shocked to find that when I brought it up in the calf, not only did the other kids not want to talk about it, they seemed to have missed the story almost entirely or only knew enough about it to pass some quizzes. They had missed everything said in class about it, too. I was missing about half of my classes under a weight of depression, mainly only showing up to do assignments worth grades, but I got Hamlet, so this didn't seem to make any sense to me. I desperately needed something that just wasn't there for me at school or church. I wanted to not be alone, but not be in crowds, not hang out with people who were drunk or high or having sex in the cemetery, but rather ones who would talk about computers and stuff in books. Worse yet, I wanted to get philosophical, theological, or generally deep a lot of the time. I wanted to talk about life, death, truth, reality, and purpose. I wasn't very old before people started complaining that I said things that were inappropriately deep, and I knew a complaint when I heard one. Deep was never a compliment, only a complaint. And I wasn't trying to be deep, I was just being me. When I told my parents around age 17 that I was thinking of killing myself, they eventually told me I had to go see our family doctor. He was old and was one of the main guys at our unchurch. Waiting to go in and see him, his nurse asked me why I'd come in. I just said, I get kind of depressed sometimes. She, being a trained medical professional, looked up from the form she was filling out on me for the doctor and said, Really? I thought that only happened to women at certain times of the month. Now, I had had my manhood questioned by far scarier people than her at school by that point, so simply thought, you're really not very good at your job, are you? Well, as soon as I started talking, my family doctor got out the pad and started writing out a prescription of the same kind of stuff that seemed to be doing nothing at all for my two parents but make them slightly more zombie-like. So I told him, 
I wouldn't take pills. He reluctantly signed me up for a therapist. The town seemingly had no therapists, and this guy was in from the big city once a month, so an appointment was made for me a couple of months down the road. I coped as best I could, and then I went to see him. When the appointment came, I sat in a chair, and he turned slightly away from me and had me talk. I explained that there was real strife between my father and I over him controlling my life with a church system that didn't work for us as a family and had treated him extremely vindictively. I explained to the therapist that I wasn't allowed to go to parties or movies or high school dances, and that I didn't really enjoy or relate to the people or things at church youth group social events either. I explained that, although I thought it was going too far to call my church a cult outright, that I was starting to think it was more cult-like than I could quite deal with. The guy let me talk, never looking at me, showing zero warmth or empathy, no response to my little jokes, having made no personal connection, done nothing to put me at ease, saying pretty much nothing, and taking only a few notes. Might have been his grocery list, for all I knew. He stopped me toward the end of the session and said, Okay, uh, what I think I'm seeing here is that there might be some problems between you and your father. Uh, you don't get out to uh, high school dances and parties and movies enough, do you? So I think maybe you should start doing that more. Um, you also seem to have some problems maybe with... Uh, was it, uh, was it church? Does that sound right? I decided that that guy was an idiot and refused to go back. He didn't know anything. The youth group leaders also didn't know anything. The guidance counselor didn't know anything. And my parents didn't know anything. I seemed to be trying to navigate an adult world in which I could find pretty much no one who knew much of anything at all. I would have to figure everything out myself, it seemed. And that was scary. Teenagers are pros at being arrogant and insecure. Maybe I'm not the only one that remembers being reminded in Sunday school that the letters of the word J-O-Y give a good clue to joy. Jesus first, others next, yourself last, J-O-Y. Toward the end of high school, the song Don't Worry, Be Happy by Bobby McFerrin came out. I had an immediate love-hate relationship with it. The love came from it being a cheerful, humble tune done entirely by the one incredibly talented guy, multi-tracking sounds all by himself and not a single musical instrument needed, even an electric guitar, to knock Guns N' Roses off the top ten. The hate part came from people literally singing it at me whenever I was most suicidal. They'd take one look at my agonized face and start singing it in a Jamaican accent faker than Bobby McFerrin's own. If you worry, you make it double, don't worry, be happy. Of course, this put my depression on steroids. I couldn't, of course, stop worrying or start being happy. In the 50 worst songs ever, Blender says that it's difficult to think of a song more likely to plunge you into suicidal despondency than this. It seems ironic to me now that McFerrin put Robin Williams in the video, showing Robin with his big sad blue eyes breaking into his enormous grin. Long after the shooting of that video about not worrying and being happy, like it was just that simple, smile and you'll feel happier, Robin Williams committed suicide. Like most people in my family, I was, and am, a champion worrier. We're pros. If anyone was 10 minutes late showing up to meet me for anything, I'd have had plenty of time to compulsively picture a large number of ways in which they died horribly and or spitefully decided they hated me for a reason or ten I could easily think of and that they never wanted to see me again. 
I decided that worrying was stupid, but that didn't help. In fact, I increasingly worried about how much I worried. I told myself, worrying is trying to change the course of events in the universe using only your own will. But I continued to worry nonetheless. Of course, we didn't self-diagnose ourselves with anxiety like all teens do now, so I just thought of myself as making a foolish and unmanly choice to spend the day worrying. Our church never spoke of self-esteem or pride as being anything other than sinful, and so when someone like me felt terrible about himself, retaining that aforementioned teenage ability to somehow be arrogant and insecure all at the same time, it wasn't like I expected comfort or compliments, and I didn't get any. Males don't tend to give each other comfort and compliments like they do women, and women do each other. Women don't tend to compliment men like they do other women. At a Bible conference of over 1,000 people, Bob Bauman said to us that sometimes, when a person says he's feeling depressed, all he needs is a chocolate bar and a Pepsi. At a youth group meeting in my area, the usual questions put anonymously in the shoebox for our youth leaders to answer had a break from the usual, why can't girls wear pants? And what's wrong with going to the movies? And instead had a more serious question from someone I longed to identify. This troubled person who my heart instantly went out to simply asked, can Christians commit suicide? The wisest minds of our youth group leaders were right on this, and the guy who visited my father as immortalized in the very first song discussed in this podcast immediately told us, earnestly and without hesitation, the Bible says there will be no murderers in heaven, and suicide is murdering yourself. So if you are a true Christian and bound for heaven, where there will be no murderers, God would never let you take your own life. Like Pierre Trudeau, I thought as loudly as I could in his general direction, just watch me. This is the kind of joy that Jesus gives, richer, fuller, deeper, as the days go by. But despite my best efforts, spoilers, today I am very much still alive, while Pierre Trudeau and my erstwhile youth group leader and father's tormentor are very much not, so it's hard to know what to think. I cannot stress how important it is that I put this music out in some form lest I keep on messing with it and adding bits and playing with it forever. It's bad. As I am recording this podcast, I'm still adding this and that to music I first started recording 20 years ago or more. I swear I just stole a rattlesnake rattling sound from YouTube and hid it in the start of this next song. Back then I had, and continue to have nowadays, far better results when trying to record something ridiculous than when trying to do something serious. Making people laugh can be far easier than making them actually like the sound or ideas of a song. This thing was impossible to mix as it had so much random stuff in it that needed to kind of blend down in but not get buried either. The song I wrote about all this self-loathing was meant to be darkly self-humorous and it employs the image that just maybe I was trying to dig a hole deep enough to finally dig up some sunshine and happiness. I certainly did feel like I was endlessly searching and digging for whatever it was I needed. Self-acceptance seemed like something that would have felt good. I had a great time fitting such spiteful, dark lyrics into a song that was much sillier than one would have expected. There is definitely the idea in it that I am shut up in my room with no one else there and only a bunch of musical instruments and recording gear all of the people in the recordings being entirely imaginary, performed entities made up by me. 
The wholly unimaginary people used to work on it in the late 90s certainly seemed confused and sometimes amused at where the song could possibly be headed in terms of a final sound. Was this something I intended to perform live at some point? I was, just maybe, compared to Yoko Ono as to my bizarre request for this song. Chris the sound engineer passed on the musical lore of Yoko Ono bringing in a dead rat in a shoebox and asking that the presumably silent dead rat be miked for a track on one of her new songs. More rat! More rat! She allegedly demanded once the song was being mixed. As to what I was actually going for as to the sound, I kind of wanted Elvis Presley and Carl Perkins and Jerry Lee Lewis recording proto-rock and roll at Sun Studios in Memphis, Tennessee, to morph gradually into the Beach Boys and then suddenly into the Sex Pistols. Didn't know quite how to do that, but trying pushed me in interesting directions. I had roommates back then, ones who weren't cats. We liked including each other in things we were working on. One did impressions, but not music, so we had him do an improvised monologue in the middle, all in Sean Connery's voice. Now Guy Lombardo, there was a musician. My other roommate was a musician and had a Tom Waits level of gritty voice. We worked on each other's music all the time, so I asked him to sing as much like Johnny Rotten of the Sex Pistols as he could. Answers I seek must be some farther down. Because my voice is generally unswervingly smooth up until the point at which I try to put grit into it and push it too hard, at which point it starts breaking down outright and I quickly lose control of my pitch and everything else. Pride, where's my pride? Like guitars, some voices distort beautifully and others just sound broken. I didn't grow up being able to avail myself of punk music when I needed it most. My real music roots from childhood are Johnny Cash and Tennessee Ernie Ford, Charlie Pride, Burl Ives, Jim Neighbors, and Bill Gaither, all singing nothing but hymns. This is the other of the two songs I asked Trevor Findlay to play solo on. He did some blistering slide guitar. Mike, the teenage sound engineer, who said he really liked my ideas, though presumably not my execution, was in a funky, funky, avant-garde art band with a local bass prodigy named Adam Fogo, and Adam graciously agreed to play on this fairly silly song and a few others, but he played a somewhat less silly part than we encouraged him to. Unlike the rest of us, he had dignity and limits. At the end, he didn't quite get how punk it was going to get, so I ended up playing the bass for the end part, and the guitars, of course, all by myself. Oddly, to save money, we were using abandoned, used ADAT tapes left lying around the studio from previous unknown clients from years gone by. So when we were getting my tracks off them, the sound of a woman singing and playing harmonica and tambourine rang out at the end of several of my recorded drum tracks. So I took a bit of that, of course. You know, I had entirely edited this podcast episode together before I remembered that I had a whole interstitial thing edited together that used to be part of the song's intro back in the day. So I had to go back and put all this in here, too. I called that thing Interrupted Intro as a file in my computer, at least. It was intended to show how between I felt socially in my late teens. 
to show the two unworkable social options generally open to me of a weekend. The folk rock Simon and Garfunkel song mentioned therein is, of course, I Am a Rock, and the root beer in brown bottles was Dad's root beer. Back in the day, it was fun to very quickly and easily do this bit in the studio. I had Mike, the sound engineer, actually record himself and his then-girlfriend Suki speaking through the studio telephone instead of just processing the sound later to sound like they had. Mike, newly out as a proud bisexual, definitely added some casual homophobia and gratuitous lechery into the lines he'd originally been given to say, ad-libbing a fair bit of his part as a drunk teenage hick. Anyways, it cost $40 this year. I'm just wanting to make sure you're coming. Suki pretty much stuck to the script, playing her part as a perky church youth group girl, which she herself was very much not. Too many tattoos, for one thing. Said fuck a lot, for another. I created lo-fi, telephone-distorted versions of what music I imagined the two characters might have on in the background, choosing a thrash metal version of an ABBA song called Does Your Mother Know for The Hick, and a Christian ripoff of Run's House by Run DMC for The Church Girl. Conscious that my adult voice wasn't terribly believable as a teenager's voice, though my teen voice was pretty much like it is now, only quieter and more mumbly, I first had a bass player named Adam, and then a few years later, a multi-instrumentalist named Joel play the part of Teenage Me for this. 40 bucks for what? Nowadays, noting that my singing voice in the track is so much deeper than their speaking voices, I've decided to put it back to me playing my teenage self. Some of this thing is actually a song, I promise.
Hello? Hey, Alice, it's Ken. How's it going? Awesome. Hey, listen, Jesse's brother lent us his truck, and Kurt and Jesse and me have a couple of two-fours here. Eh? I know you don't drink, but we can get you a Pepsi or something, you know. We're going to this club in Hall called the Wet Spot. Shit, man, you should see it. There's this one dancer, she's blonde with a mango in those bags on her. And she takes a big honk and says, Got it, Mom. No 16, and Jesse's the only one with fake ID. How are you going to get in? Hey, no problem, man. His cousin's boyfriend is one of the, one of the bouncers, and he'll let us in no problem. He'll probably even get us free drinks and dances and titties and stuff, too. Anyway, are you coming? No, I don't think so. Why not? You're not turning me on us, huh? Are you, 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 you corner? You know you're just going to get in a huge fight with a bunch of French guys and get kicked out of the place. It's not really my kind of thing. Not really your thing. It's tits, for God's sake. You're turning me a turd burglar? What exciting stuff do you have planned for tonight, bang? I was just going to do some recording. At home, playing with your equipment, huh? <laughs> different strokes for different bags. <laughs> Thanks. Ciao. Yes, yeah, yeah, it's cool. That you cause 
peak I donned it. I see only backs, not one face or one hand. Y'all know that I'm hurting, but you just won't understand. Alright, where do I start? Shh, this is the silent part. See what I have dug in my eyes. No one will help me, so I'll owe no one thanks. Answers I seek must be some farther down. Let them know I'm digging with a snarl and a frown. Pride, where's my pride? I must I dig in? Why must you hide? All that I want is to find self-acceptance. I'll break through and find some more. Yeah.